Psalm 33 is a song of praise, particularly for God's protection. While there is no specific author attached to this psalm, the translators of the Septuagint ascribe authorship to David. As well, there is no specific occasion given for this psalm. However, based on verse 16, the psalm does reference God's protection at the Red Sea. Also, based on verse 19, the psalmist references God's protection during the famine. This, partic- this could be a reference to the three-year famine during the reign of David. Whether the psalmist had in mind these specific occasions is unknown. What is known is that God is to be praised for protecting his people. And so Psalm 33 is a song of praise for protection. A song of praise for protection. We're going to divide this psalm into two parts. First, the first 11 verses we'll see the blessedness of praise, the blessedness of praise. And then in verses 12 through 22, we're going to look at the blessedness of protection, the blessedness of protection. So let's begin with verses 1 through 11 and consider the blessedness of praise. Now in the first three verses, we see the requirement for praise. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Notice here that the psalm begins with an imperative. And that imperative is to sing. We are commanded to sing. There's no such thing as, I'm not going to sing. We are commanded to sing. And that means, literally, shout for joy. It betrays a public ringing celebration. And notice who are summoned here to praise or to worship are the righteous because they've been separated from the heathen. They've been cleansed from their sin. They're in a relationship with the living God. And their praise is to be becoming or fitting in harmony with God. In other words, our worship, our praise should be fitting for God. So we know who is to praise God. That's us believers. Now the psalm tells us how to praise God. And here the praise of God is to be through song accompanied by a harp or an instrument of ten strings. In other words, the music is to be made to God, not the congregation. Make melody to Him. See, worship is not a performance simply so you can be inspired or entertained. Worship is to be a vehicle through which we bring our praise and our joy to the Lord. We thank Him for who He is. We thank Him for what He has done. That's glory. And notice the singing is to be with a new song. There's an anticipation here of the new song of redemption that will be sung in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10 by the church in heaven. See, our music is to be played also, notice, skillfully. Listen, this is not amateur hour. We're not supposed to be offering our second best. We're to offer our best to God. So whatever your best is, that's what you are to offer to God. Our worship is to be joyful, it's to be beautiful, it's to be boisterous, it's to be a shout of joy. Now in verse 4 through 11, where again we're talking about the blessedness of praise, we have the requirement for praise. Now look at the reason for praise. Verse 4 to 11. For the word of the Lord is upright, all his work is done in faithfulness, he loves righteousness and justice, the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens are made, by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the water of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. So in verse 4 and 5, the psalmist shows us that worship is a response to God's word. The word of the Lord is right. It is upright. It is straightforward. There's no deception in what God says. And his works are done in truth. In other words, we can count on them. Then he elaborates on the works of God, which includes righteousness. Righteousness is moral purity in relationship. Justice is judgments which are true. Loving kindness refers to covenant love. God loves these works because they're expressions of his own character. As we know, the earth is full of the goodness or the character of the Lord. The earth is full of his righteousness, his justice, his loving kindness. And so as the psalmist meditates upon the word of God in creation, you cannot help but think of Genesis 1. In verse 6, he speaks of the heavens and the being. The heavenly host is created by the breath of his mouth. The host refers to the angelic beings. The breath of his mouth refers to the Holy Spirit. Same word for spirit, ruach. God also heaps up the waters. That is, he puts the oceans into their storehouses. He puts them in their place. He controls and he provides for every aspect of his creation. And before the glory of the creator in his powerful world, all the earth should bow down to him in fear. Literally, stand in all of him. When we look at the creative realm, it ought to make us bow the knee to God and reverence him. He spoke and it was done. He created everything ex nihilo. At his command, everything was. Now in the New Testament, we know that that creative word of God is revealed as the Son, Jesus Christ. And so our worship of the Creator is, our, is a worship of Jesus Christ. And not only does the creation exist by the Word of God, but that same Word is going to judge the nations. And notice that in verses 10 to 11, the contrast between the vain or the empty counsel and plans of the nations versus God's own counsel and plans. You see, the nations in their pride, they claim they have autonomy. They've got no autonomy. They offer their godly counsel, their advice, their wisdom. They make their plans. But that's just a passing show, folks. Listen, people say, how come you don't, you, you don't, you're not worried about what this government's doing or what the government's doing here or there? Listen, I don't have to worry about it because it's a passing show. All I've got to worry about is what God has called me to do, and that is preach the gospel. All I've got to worry about doing is be holy as he is holy. All I've got to worry about doing is being obedient to him. The nations can rage all they want. But at the end of the day, it's a passing show. Listen, look at history. History is littered with kingdoms that have risen and kingdoms that have fallen. And you know what the answer is? Right in the book of Daniel, the Lord raises them up and the Lord takes them down. They can have all their plans. They can have all their counsel. It's just a show. It's going to be nothing. It's going to have no effect. God is going to break their rebellious spirit because the counsel of the Lord is going to stand forever. His plans are going to last throughout the generations because they are eternal. When God speaks, God does what he says he will do. Now, as we come to the second part of this psalm, verses 12 to 22, we have the blessedness of protection. 
And again, we're going to look at the first part here, verses 12 to 19, as we consider the blessedness of protection. Let's look at the safety of the godly. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works, the king is not saved by a mighty army, a warrior is not delivered by great strength, a horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on all those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Notice how David turns from meditating on the word of God to the eye of God. The Lord looks from heaven. See, God just doesn't speak, God sees. And he's to be, he is the exalted one in heaven, and his watchful eye is looking. And that assures us that God is attentive. God is not only there, he is attentive. Hanani the prophet promised King Asa, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. You know, you don't need to trust in kings. You don't need to trust in horses or in military strength. You don't need to, d- to depend on soldiers. All we got to depend on is God. That's who, our, that's who our protector is, God. God sees all the sons of men throughout the whole earth. Listen, God is not some tribal deity. He's a God for all the inhabitants of the earth. And the Lord fashions the hearts of all people. That's individually. He considers and judges all their works. Listen, at the end of the day, God is going to bring all nations to himself. And they're all going to bow. Better to bow voluntarily than to bow forcefully. See, all those who bow voluntarily, they're his. But at the end, all those who he forces to bow, they're on their way to hell. But ultimately... All will bow. None will escape his judgment. Because of who God is, and whether it's in his creative work, in his judging work, in his redeeming work, listen, because of his all-encompassing gaze, listen, we do not need to trust in human power or might. Pick any king, queen, monarchy, president, dictator, what have you. They can't give you security. Find the greatest army in all the world. They can't can't protect you. No warrior, no mighty man can protect you. No horse, no tank, no guns, no jeeps, none of that, aircraft, etc., can offer you safety. If you're putting your hope in those things, then your hope is in the wrong thing. Our hope needs to be in the Lord. Now, certainly the Lord can use any of those things to accomplish His will. But believer, you and I need to readjust our focus back to God. Oh, but, but so-and-so, He can deliver me. Oh, so-and-so, they, they, they can do this. Listen, they can't do anything except what God may allow them to do or not to do. History bears this out. God is in the business of breaking the pride of the nations. 
And notice that God's eye is especially on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. Listen, if you're a believer and you're fearing him and your hope is in him, I got news for you. His eye is on you. And as we noted here before, those who fear are those who reverence God, those who bow in awe of God. So when you're submitting to him in worship, when you're lifting up him and giving him praise for his mercy, for his covenant love, for his righteousness, for his judgments, for his creative work, guess what? His eye is on you. He's not only present, but he's watching out for you. And notice what it says here. He will deliver his own from death and keep them alive in the famine. It tells us that God is the master of our circumstances. Now, we put a lot of emphasis on the temporal here, but ultimately we're talking about the eternal and the spiritual. Listen, we're all going to face physical death at some time or another. And while none of us want to really think about that fact, that is a reality. So then how does he say that he's going to deliver us from death and keep us alive in the famine? Well, on one hand, certainly it does mean that death, though it may come, God can keep us from it. No doubt that God can deliver us. You know, he is the one who determines when it's our time to go. He can keep us from the famine if he chooses to. But greater than that is the fact that he's going to deliver us from spiritual death. He's going to deliver us from being separated from him for all eternity. Again, he's the master of our circumstances. For us, it is Jesus who delivered our soul from eternal death. John 11, 25, 26. Listen, don't fear what man can do to you. Don't fear him who can take your life. Fear him who can take your soul. As he says to his disciples, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. John 6, 27. And yet, so often, all we're focused on is the here and now and getting what we want, when we want, how we want. And we're so selfish. Oh, we, we, oh I can't wait till things get back to normal. Who says normal was good? That's just what you're conditioned to. What if there's something better than normal? What if God wasn't happy with normal? Instead of seeking to labor for the things that perish, we need to labor for the things that are eternal. And finally, verse 20 to 22 gives us the security of the godly. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our hearts rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. The psalm ends here with this meditation on a God who speaks and a God who sees. He is our deliverer. He is our protector. He's our help, our defense, our shield. And that's therefore we can trust in him, in his holy name, in his character, in who he is and what he has done. And as we reflect on that, it'll cause us to worship. Finally, the psalmist asks the Lord, turn our hope for mercy into an experience of mercy. Be upon us, O Lord, according as we have hoped in you. Lord, be present in our lives to the degree that we have hoped in you. That ought to be a serious thing to think about, friends. How much do you place your hope in God? The psalmist here is saying, you'll get the measure of God's presence in your life to the degree that you hope in Him. So if you're not putting your hope in God, you can't count on God's presence. 
If you're saying, well, I, I hope in God 10%, well then, figure you're only going to get 10% of God's presence. You've got to put all your hope, all your eggs in the basket, got to be on Him. And then He'll be all there for you. Psalm 33 clearly affirms that God is our protector. He is our deliverer. You know, this God who spoke and sees isn't interested in our institutions and our programs. What he's interested is in our worship. What he's interested in is our praise. God delivered us from the vanity of our own plans, the vanity of our own counsel, and therefore, we need to rely on his plans and his counsel. We need to pray that his plans and his counsel would be ours. Not my will, but thine be done. And as that becomes our prayer, let us live under his gaze. Let us go forth knowing that his eye of mercy is upon us and that he will keep us through this life and that he will usher us into his presence at the appointed time. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank you that you are our protector. And so, Lord, we give you the praise for protection. You are the God who not only speaks, you are the God who sees. You not only create it, but then you watch. You just didn't abandon your creation. You didn't just abandon mankind. You watch. And more so than that, Father, you don't just look. You actively involve yourself. You're looking so you can act on the behalf of your people for your honor and glory. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to hope in you. Help us to put our trust 100% in you. Help us, Lord, to stop putting our trust and our faith and our beliefs in all the things of humanity, the governments, and all this other nonsense that's going to fail us time and again, but that our hope and trust will be in you. Father God, I ask and pray that you would help us to throw off our own plans, lay aside our own counsel, and Father, seek your plan and your counsel for our lives. Father, I pray that your presence would be in our midst. And I pray, Lord, it would be in a big way, not just a little bit, but again, your word has said it will be to the degree that we trust in you. So Father, help us to trust in you more. Help us to cast everything upon you. Help us to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you. And then you'll direct our paths. And so to that we say, Amen.